our Father, we rejoice that the finite can know the infinite, that the Creator speaks to the created. Speak in the stillness as we wait on Thee. We can become so conditioned to opening this book that we forget who wrote this book. This book was not written for our entertainment, but for our transformation. Use these words, your words, to transform us, to change the way we think, to change the way we view life, to change the way we view you. We've all heard sermons that didn't land on us. That's not the fault of your word. That's the fault of our hearts. We were distracted. We were not fully engaged. We were not ready to process, digest, internalize your word. Let this be one of let this not be one of those days. Let this be a day in which the glories of your word rock us. Do it for the praise of your name and the good of your people. Father, give us gospel discernment. Help us to know a thing as evil even when we think it's good. We desire to see our sin. Then bewail and confess in sincerity. Help us to mourn for sin more than other people mourn. We refuse to cherish and adore the sin that caused you so much grief. Work in us profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of godly grief that trembles and fears yet ever trusts and loves. At the end of our repenting, we shall stand up and walk away with confidence, knowing that our prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon our sins, only the work of Christ. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We, we are used to being pitched and marketed, but we are not used to being awed. Kenneth Langley, a pastor from Illinois, took his family on vacation. While on vacation, they visited a church where he says the worship service featured coffee tables where congregants drank coffee and ate delicious pastries while the band played music so loud it would take the tartar off your teeth. Then the preacher in Bermuda shorts and an untucked Hawaiian shirt delivered a talk during which he moved in and out among the tables, stopping for unrelated banter with members of the congregation, then coming back to the Bible on his stool to make, in the words of Langley, what were, I'll admit, orthodox, practical observations from the text. On the way home, Langley asked his family what they thought of the service, and the conversational style of the sermon. No one spoke at first. Then 15-year-old Jeff answered. Jeff, a ponytail drummer with bare feet and ripped jeans, 
no clone of his father, said, it seems to me that a sermon ought to be big because God is big. For 16 years now, this pastor has had his son's words hanging on the wall of his study. A sermon ought to be big because God is big. We are used to being pitched and marketed, but we are not used to being awed. Sermons should be weighty because we have a weighty God. God is not kind of like us, but a little bit better. The otherness of God produces a gravitas, a gravity. But beloved, listen to me, it's a glad gravity. My hope today is that you will hear a better sermon than I preach. That you will feel the weight of his glory. The average church attender's view of God is scarcely capable of producing awe. In fact, many churches have put awe to death in their services. Before we approach this text, we are immediately faced with two challenges. The first challenge is this. Some of you misunderstand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Those who set the Father against the Son in the drama of redemption have an uninformed view of God's fatherness. We must correct the harsh father and kind son misunderstanding. The misunderstanding that sees God as against us and Jesus as for us. God the Father is for us. He spared not his only son to bring us to himself. You are saved because of God the Father's love. God chose. God elected. God would not leave you dead in your sin. God longed for his prodigal to return. He's not a harsh, harsh father. He's a good, good father. Redemption began in the heart of the father. Do not set the father against the son in the unfolding drama of redemption. We see them working in tandem in our text. Now the second challenge is this. Something is being explained to us with an inadequate vocabulary to explain it. Jesus Christ, after 60 years after Jesus Christ died, rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. 60 years after that, one of his followers, John, was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was a penal settlement, basically Alcatraz. While John's on Alcatraz, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to him. Jesus pulled back the curtain and allowed John to see heaven, to see behind the curtain, to see the one controlling all things. John is invited to tour God's throne room. And Jesus is his tour guide. That's what Revelation 4 is all about. Jesus ascends into heaven, excuse me, John ascends into heaven either physically or spiritually, and he beholds what's taking place. John writes to seven churches, and he explains what he saw. How do you explain heaven to people who have never been there? How do you describe God who is beyond description? How do you depict sinless beauty with a sinful vocabulary? 
So John has quite a task ahead of him. Trying to explain the wonder of heaven to us is like trying to explain electricity to someone living in the Stone Ages. Your vocabulary is just going to fail. How would you explain electricity to someone living in the Stone Ages? They've never seen it, never heard the word, don't have a category for the concept. What would you say? Electricity. Well, well, we take light poles. Oh, wait, you don't know what light poles are. There are these trees that we take out of the ground and then refashion and put back into the ground. And then we run power lines. Oh, wait, you don't, you don't know what power lines are. We, we drape these soft, bendable vines be between the trees. Then it pumps energy like an invisible force into your mud hut. And it makes the sun shine through a clear ball. Excuse me? What? This is John's task to us. His vocabulary will fail him. He writes of infinite realities by speaking in earthly analogies. He gives metaphor after metaphor. You don't try to make the metaphor walk on all fours. You're not supposed to be able to draw this image. It's dangerous to seek to find a one-to-one -one correspondence for everything in this chapter. John didn't expect us to be precise in untangling everything. He's forced to employ earthly analogies. If you attempt to make them convey more than John intends, you will conceal the glory he is trying to reveal. I've got two movements for you today. First, we're going to tour the throne of heaven. That will be most of our time. And then secondly, we're going to explain how this tour should change us. Notice verse 1. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In chapters 2 and 3, John has been writing seven local churches on earth. Now he's taken to heaven in a vision. It's a scene change, but not a time change. Our vision is elevated from earth to heaven. Same time, different viewpoint. I really think this passage is happening currently, not something that will happen in the future but a description of something that is happening now. Not a future reality, but a present one. John goes up. I don't know where this up is, but I know you can't get there with a plane or a spaceship. Jesus shows John not what will take place, but what must take place. What has been foreordained by God. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, church, as we take this tour, I want you to notice that John will not present God the Father on the throne in any human form. He can't look on God. Even after the tour, he doesn't have any greater information on God's appearance. He doesn't describe the contours of his face. Oh, what a strong jawline. What big arms. No. 
The unknowable transcendence of God is protected by focusing instead on the throne itself and what goes on around it. The word throne is found 60-some times in the New Testament. 47 of those are in the book of Revelation. Throne is mentioned 18 out of the 22 chapters. Do not forget that this is also a letter with real, living, breathing recipients. The people in these seven churches are familiar with thrones. They are ruled by one in Rome. Domitian sits on the Roman throne. But here we have one who sits on a higher throne. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John describes the brilliance of the throne by mentioning three gems. First, jasper. Now, some historians say that that this jasper is a green color stone. Most historians say it's clear like a diamond. It brilliantly reflected all the colors of the spectrum. The second gem, carnelian. This was a, a fiery, deep red stone. When light passed through it, the inside looked like a smoldering fire. Around the throne was a rainbow. Is this the first time we've ever encountered a rainbow? No. We find one here in the last book of the Bible, but also back in the first book of the Bible. It was a promise that God would never flood the earth again. The promises of God surround the throne. This rainbow is not multicolored like the one back in Genesis. This one is emerald. Green. Greens and reds and and diamonds reflecting every color of the spectrum. John sees the most beautiful light show taking place in heaven. It's a light show that needs no electricity. Have you ever thought about this? In Genesis, when God said, let there be light, it came from a color-laden throne. Now, scholars sometimes sometimes attempt to assign meaning to all of these colors. They say green means mercy, red means wrath, diamond means purity. There's no need to do that. That's not the point. You can't prove any of that from Scripture. Plus, the first century lacked scientific terminology. So the identification of these stones can be hazardous business. We think Jasper was diamond-like and not green-like, but we aren't sure. They will say other things, like the first two stones were in the high priest's breastplate. So they represent the firstborn Reuben and the lastborn Benjamin. The three jewels do not have individual significance. They should be viewed together. The stones are just speaking of God's glory and beauty. We are not to subjectively read meaning into each color. Beholding the glory of the throne is like beholding the glory of precious stones. Stones are beautiful. God the Father is beautiful. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light. That is the point. 
the stones intensify the light around the throne. We are beholding inestimable beauty and majesty. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Around God's brilliant, unapproachable throne are 24 smaller thrones. They are approachable. John doesn't only see light when he looks at them. He sees elders. John can see their faces. He could not see the face of God. So these thrones are lesser in brilliance. On the thrones are 24 elders. Now, church, who, who are the 24 elders? Are they 24 elite pastors? Is the Spurge on one of those thrones? Maybe Martin Luther on another? Calvin? Martin Lloyd-Jones? And wait a minute, are they already filled? How is that possible? John MacArthur hasn't died yet. <laughs> You're telling me J-Mac doesn't get a throne? And really, vastly more important than him, how can the thrones be filled when your pastors haven't died yet? <laughs> the word elder is presbyteros. There are 24 presbyteros. It's where we get our word Presbyterian. This reminds me of a little girl who came home from her Presbyterian church one Sunday afternoon. On the way home, her mother asked her what she learned in Sunday school. She said, we studied Revelation chapter 4 and found out that only 24 Presbyterians make it to heaven. <laughs> yeah, that's all if you're a Presbyterian. That's just a joke. We all know there will not be that many Presbyterians in heaven. R.C. Sproul is rolling over in his grave. <laughs> there is some debate on the meaning of these elders. There are three main positions. I usually put this on the screen, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to give you all three positions, and, and then I'll let you know where I land. Now, some say the elders refers to angels. Some say it represents all humanity. And some say it refers to the raptured church. Angels first. Uh, Grant Osborne and Tom Schreiner and D.A. Carson believe these 24 elders are angels. Just a unique form or order of angels. In fact, they believe that there are three or four groups mentioned around the throne, but they're all angels and they're separated by mere rank. Angels, that's one view. All humanity is another view. Uh, G.K. Bill and Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller believe the 24 elders are representative of all humanity. Their number? Twice 12. 24 is a representative number. It represents, the, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Israel and the new church. You have in these 24 the full people of God. It pictures the triumphant church of God, past, present, and future. It's the whole community of the redeemed. This is the, the longest standing view, the most ancient view. So angels, uh, the whole community of God, and then you have the raptured church. 
John MacArthur and Stephen Davey believe that the 24 elders represent only the raptured church. Now, it's going to take me too long to fully explain where they get all that, but that's their view. The first and second view are the more likely view. Angels or all humanity. So let me give you the argument for the elders representing all humanity. These elders have crowns and the churches to whom John previously wrote in chapters 2 and 3 were promised crowns. You never see crowns on angels, only on people. These elders are also wearing white, which Jesus promised to clothe his redeemed. In addition, believers in those letters are promised to sit on thrones. Angels never sit on thrones. Crowns or thrones aren't promised to angels, but to the redeemed. Plus, whenever presbyteros is mentioned, it's always referring to men and never to angels. So there, you're convinced. The 24 elders are definitely representing the redeemed of all ages. But there's still some problems. See, these 24 elders in the next chapter do not include themselves in the redeemed. They praise the lamb in chapter 5 that he purchased a people, but not that he purchased them. See, angels didn't have to be redeemed. They were sinless. Uh, they, they sing of the redemption of others. So they don't include themselves among the redeemed. And they are always mentioned along with the four living creatures. We will talk about them in a minute, which are angels. They are only ever mentioned when the order of angels are mentioned. Plus, exile John was one of the apostles. So wouldn't he have seen himself on one of those thrones? For these reasons, I believe the 24 elders are not representatives of the people of God, but are angels. The 24 elders are angels. Now, I lean toward angels, but I could be absolutely wrong. Here's what's important. If it's angels or the redeemed already in heaven, the point of the vision doesn't change at all. All created beings bow before the majesty of this one who dwells in unapproachable light. I'm not so sure we're supposed to know who the 24 elders are. He's made other things in the book very clear if he wanted us to know. I'm just not sure we are intended to know who they are. Jesus isn't in heaven going, oh, man. I forgot to tell John on that tour that the 24 elders meant were meant to represent all humanity. Whatever fine points we come to about the 24 elders, we can be sure of this. God sits on his throne as king of all creation. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Notice how he's explaining this. Which are the seven spirits of God. In verse 5 the little thrones fade out of the picture and the great throne comes back into focus. There are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder proceeding from the throne, proceeding from God himself. This is imagery drawn from many Old Testament passages. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he witnessed the terrible manifestations of a storm. The readers in these seven churches knew their Old Testaments well. They would have turned to their Old Testament in their Bibles to Exodus to compare the language. Exodus 19, 16, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain 
God answered Moses in thunder. God disclosed himself in the dramatic activity of nature. Now we also have, we also have the Trinity here. God the Son, Jesus, giving the tour of the throne room. God the Father on the throne. And God the Holy Spirit represented here by the seven spirits. You may remember that from chapter 1. The seven spirits were God's perfect Holy Spirit. Meant to convey the perfections of the Spirit. Not seven unique spirits, but one Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 speaks of the seven perfections of the Spirit. And this could be an allusion to that. Verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Let's park here for a minute. This is intended to add awesome splendor to the throne room scene. There is a river of redemption before the throne, a sea of salvation. The floor is transparent like crystal. A clear glass, crystal, would have been rare in the first century. Most glass was not clear in the ancient world. Very few had figured out how to do that. There was crystal around the throne before it was on earth. We see this throne with brilliant, beautiful colors and now an expansive, vast sea of crystal. He's building upon it in verse 6b. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are freaky little creatures prowling around the throne. I've uncovered more views on these creatures than you want to hear. I've read attempts to interpret these beasts to represent creation. The, the lion points to wild creatures the ox points to domesticated creatures. The eagle points to flying creatures. Man points to the pinnacle of all the creatures, the pinnacle of creation. Hey, look, all very creative. Just not the point. I've read attempts to equate the living creatures with the four Gospels. The lion represents the book of Matthew. The ox represents the book of Mark. Uh, man represents the book of Luke. Eagle represents the book of John. It flies above the rest. All that is completely baseless. We are not left to wonder. This is not the first time we've encountered these four creepy creatures in the Bible. You find them in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They are the highest order of angelic beings. Now John takes the freedom to blend the pictures in those two accounts to describe the picture here. This is another reason why I say John's vision here is not in the future. It is in the present. It's happening now. It's been going on since the Old Testament over 700 years ago at the time of this writing when Isaiah saw it. Over 600 years ago at the time of this writing when Ezekiel saw it. Now what are these high order of angelic beasts doing? 
I want you to gra grasp this. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. Let's stop there. They're chanting. They're chanting night and day without a break. They do ceaseless adoration. This praise never stops. They never sleep. They've been moving and crawling around the throne since God spoke them into existence. And they never stop glorifying God for who he is. They declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thrice repeated. They declare God is holy because it's true. He is. He's uncontaminated by sin. Why don't these majestic creatures cry, morality, morality, morality is the Lord God Almighty? Because holiness is more than morality. You should read R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God. And why don't these creatures cry, Love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is the only attribute of God that is attributed to him this way. Thrice repeated. God's holiness guides his love. Now let's talk about what these creatures are doing. They are serving as worship leaders. They orchestrate the worship of God. They are a quartet. And they're about to lead the lesser order of angels in singing. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now, according to Tacitus, which is a, a Roman public official, um, close first and second century. Uh, lesser kings would lay their crowns down before another emperor to show their submission. If they came upon a more ruling figure. These ruling elders in the text laid their crowns down before a more powerful ruler. They give God the Father glory, honor, and power. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the word give. They're not giving him something he doesn't already possess. They aren't giving him gifts and he's unwrapping it thinking, Oh, you didn't have to do that. Thank you. No, they had to do this. It's his divine right to receive it and their divine responsibility to give or better, to recognize it, to attest to it. Now, some of you are, some of you are not Christians. And we talk often openly about this. And this, this, is, this may be your holdup. Is God on some type of ego trip? He's constantly in the Bible saying, praise me. No. God the Father is completely self-sufficient. His happiness is not dependent on you. Dear friend, he doesn't need your praise. But you need to praise him. You were created for this purpose. 
And you will never feel complete, fulfilled, or at home until you do what you were created to do. Praise your creator. In the first century, in the day in which the people of these seven churches lived and would have read this letter, they would have experienced when an emperor was crowned and the streets cried out, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. So this vision in Revelation 4 is being used polemically. God is the emperor above all emperors. God is to be worshipped for who he is. He's not an exalted human. God is worthy of praise simply because there is no one else like him. He is worthy. And the ruling impulse of your heart is to rob him of his glory. The worst thing you did last week, the worst thing you did last week was fail to give him the glory he deserves. I think it was Piper who said that the ultimate goal of a church is not missions, it's worship. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When God wraps this world up and creates a new one, missions will be no more, but worship will last forever. There have been two movements, touring the throne of heaven. We just finished that tour. Now we're going to explain how this tour should change us. And there are five ways that this tour should change you. Way number one, it should make you realize you will stand before this God in his throne room. You will stand before this God in his throne room. It's chilling. It's chilling to read in Winston Churchill's biography that when he was once asked if he was ready to meet God, he responded, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Dear friend, no human bravado will stand up before this almighty judge. I have a little bust of Churchill in my office over here. On Friday, I looked him in the eye and said, what were you thinking? <laughs> Next week, I'll tell you what he said back. <laughs> Non-Christian, are you ready to stand in this courtroom? Are you ready to stand before this throne? There are so many people who think they are Christians, and they're not. Everything else is a priority more pressing than the Lord. They will say, well, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I was baptized. I go to church sometimes. There's no evidence, no fruit that you're genuinely a Christian. You will stand before this throne and he will say, I never knew you. And deep down, you know it's true. There's no fruit in your life that you're a Christian. You can say you're, you're an apple tree all you want, but you're producing no apples. Non-Christians, you will spend eternity apart from this God, apart from everlasting pleasures. You will be in everlasting torment. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your soul's salvation. They say, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it before, Kyle. 
I've been coming here for a couple months. And yeah, here's what I've decided. I'm going to contest his rule. I don't believe in God. Okay. Your view of him doesn't change his status at all. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And you'll still stand before him. The second way this tour should change you is this. It should make you realize no matter what is going on in the world, God is sitting on his throne. You should, you should put that statement above your TV. This entire vision is a direct contrast to the glory of Domitian's throne. For the recipients of this letter, they were surrounded by people falling and worshiping before the emperor's throne. But they will not budge. They will not bow. They are a little hated minority. But what sustains them is to know that God is on his throne. Domitian, like all kings and all royalty, traveled with an entourage. He never made an appearance alone. He had attendants all around his throne. In this text, we see God's royal entourage. He never makes an appearance alone. He's surrounded by angelic beings. He's the global cosmic king. John is exiled on Alcatraz, and he wants these seven churches to be like him. So God intoxicated that they can't be intimidated. Despite what is going on in the world, God reigns. Now, sometimes people get frustrated with me. Now, I know that's hard for you to believe. How could anyone get frustrated with you, Kyle? Well, they don't see my wonderfulness like you do. And you should talk to them. Many times people get frustrated with me because I do not panic when world events happen. I do not change my planned preaching schedule. I do not hold special meetings to talk about what's going on in the world. I don't address world affairs in the sermon. Elections, <laughs> elections come and go and I rarely say a word. Kyle, why aren't you more concerned? Why aren't you worried? Why isn't there a bit of panic in you? Things are changing in our country. Dear frightened one, I can't. I just can't be all bent out of shape like you. I have a high view of God. I'm just not concerned with earthly thrones because I've seen the heavenly throne and it has consumed me. There is no earthly throne that shakes me. I don't panic because there is no panic in heaven. There is no panic in our passage. The affairs of this world rest not in the hands of men, but of God. John sees the throne above all thrones. Do you? See, when you're around this throne, everything is seen rightly as it is. The third way this tour should change you is this. When it seems your life is falling apart, remember, you're living in the mere shadow of the ultimate reality. When it seems your life is falling apart, remember, you're living in the shadow of the ultimate reality. Some of you are having your heart ripped out right now by a child. Some of you can't remember when there's been more conflict at, at your job. 
Families falling apart, work falls apart, friends move away, marriages tank, cancer scans reveal tumors, finances become really strained, you become really lonely. Life has the tendency to fall apart. I don't know what you're going through right now to make it seem like that life is coming apart at the seams, but you need to realize that it's all a shadow. I want to be sure not to minimize anything you're going through. Nothing. But I do want to put it all into proper perspective. What we read today, the tour we went on today, the throne room of God, that's reality. This scene in Revelation 4 is more real and more long-lasting than everything going on in your life. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. This, this is a shadow. That is the reality. There, there had to have been so many unique problems presented among these seven churches to whom John writes. There had to be a ton of members facing health problems, political problems, financial problems, marriage problems, not enough time in the day problems. There are myriads of problems. John, I mean, he could never, he could never address them all. Or could he? Yes, he addresses all by presenting people with what they need to endure them. Seeing God the Father seated on his throne. What is the answer for all these fleeing Ukrainians? What is the answer for the Christian brother who has passed over for promotion because he is a Christian? What is the answer for the collegiate who is publicly mocked and academically ridiculed? What is the answer for the mother crying in the fetal position with screaming kids in the next room? What is the answer for a child that is bullied? The single adult who is lonely. The depressed who is considering suicide. All you need to persevere is found here. The throne. This is reality. Everything else is a shadow. No matter what you're enduring on earth, it will be put into proper perspective when you gaze at the one on the throne. The fourth way this tour should change you is this. It should make you get off your little throne because you're not the center of the universe. Get off your little throne because you're not the center of the universe. You've set up your little baby throne and you're trying to rule and reign. Do you think the world revolves around you? That everyone should be on your beck and call? Everybody's schedule needs to change to accommodate you? You're so egocentric you can only interpret events by how it affects you? You may have fooled your mama and you may have fooled your daddy. You may have them on your beck and call, but you have not fooled God. You are not on the throne in this passage. Hear me. You may have your spouse convinced that you are the center of all things, but ma'am, you are not. Sir, you are not. One of the things this vision of God on the throne does is that it radically displaces humanity as the center of all things. There is a throne that is the center of all things, but it's not your throne. It's his throne. That was a pleasant one. 
The fifth way this tour should change you is this. It should give you ammunition for when Satan seeks, for when Satan sneaks into your mind with doubt. It should give you ammunition for when Satan sneaks into your mind with doubt. Let's take a little survey here. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the well-worn film classic, The Wizard of Oz? Seen that? Remember young Dorothy, snatched by tornado from her farm home in black and white Kansas, awakens in the technicolor world of Oz. Oz is full of wonders, but Dorothy longs for home and begins a pilgrimage to the Emerald City where she is told the great Wizard of Oz can fulfill her longing to return to Kansas. Why anyone would want to return to Kansas, I don't know. <laughs> Along the way, she meets fellow pilgrims who desire to meet the Wizard of Oz, a tin man needing a heart, a lion lacking courage, a scarecrow who longs for a brain. Finally granted an audience with the wizard, the pilgrims are terrified by the awful flashes of light, billowing smoke, and the thunderous voice that assail their eyes and ears. Until Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs to the side and pulls aside the curtain in one of the corners of the, of the great hall, revealing a little old man operating buttons and levers speaking into a microphone. As it turns out, the wizard's terrifying splendor is merely the product of technology and savvy marketing. Realizing that the reality of his mundane status has been revealed, the old man shouts in the microphone, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It turns out the wizard wasn't worthy of the pilgrim's awe. There are times when Satan creeps into your heart and dispenses doubt. Is God the Father really on a throne? Is he really worth my awe? God gave this vision and recorded it in pages of a book so that you would realize he's no wizard of Oz. God's terrifying splendor and the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder are not a product of technology and savvy marketing. It's a product of his holiness. You are not told, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Jesus opened the curtain of heaven to demonstrate to you that this father is worthy of your awe. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we've toured your throne. <laughs> and after we can only say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You have our awe, our affections, our love, our souls. We needed this tour. We needed to see this throne. We needed to see you in your glorious, unapproachable light. Thank you for this sustaining vision. It will sustain us.